0: podcast about product management, user experience, design, technology, and more. This is Product by Design. All right, welcome to another episode of Product by Design. I am Kyle Evans, and today we have a, another great guest with us, Dr. Kenya Odor. Welcome to the show, Kenya. It's great to have you on.
1: Likewise. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm excited about our conversation. I am
0: extremely excited. So let me give a brief introduction and then we'll have you kind of tell us a little bit more about yourself. So Dr. Kenya Odor is a human-centered researcher and strategist and solution designer and trained in human factors, experimental psychology, and industrial engineering, and has started Lean Geeks, which is a business consulting and staffing firm. So that is a very brief intro. Kenya, we would love if you would tell us a little bit more about yourself and dive into some of your background, uh, which is extensive. And I am so excited to hear more about.
1: Absolutely. So um, it's always funny when people ask you, you know, tell me about yourself. It's it's like, where do I start? (laughs) So I am I made a career shift after undergrad. I was one of those on um, the five year plan because I didn't have it all figured out and went from engineering to psychology to physical therapy. And so, a few years out of college, I was doing what I obviously didn't want to do. And I still had that passion or love for building things or creating stuff for people. And that's when I found the field of human factors. And so I relocated to North Carolina to uh, get a graduate degree. And um, in that time, uh, I had the fortunate circumstance of getting a position at IBM while I was a student. So it was an introduction to um, human factors psychology and the application of it in um, the software space. So this wasn't an intentional move on my part from a career standpoint. It was more of something that I stumbled on. I kind of kept going with it and learned how to communicate effectively with technologists and, you know, leverage that systems thinking Mm -hmm. that I was really passionate about in the realm of software development. And so throughout my career, I was having a conversation with someone the other day about mentors and how my mentors are the ones that um, two two people in particular who um, encouraged me to go into management and leadership, and I wasn't. Again, I was like, really? So. It was one of those things where someone else saw it before I did. And then once I got comfortable with the idea and started to explore opportunities, that's when I decided to step into from practitioner to leader in the space. And um, that opened up the whole world of kind of seeing things from the bottom up as a practitioner and from the top down as a leader and understanding, you know, strategy within organizations and how investment and decisions are made to determine you know, why UX, how many UXers and what for, and that kind of thing. Right. So then I got that itch and I was like, I need to move on. So I go to another company. Um, and then I said, you know what? I've always wanted to do my own thing. So I'm going to try out this entrepreneur world. And And so I bootstrapped a business. My husband and I stacked hands that I had six months to get my first contract. And I got my first contract in six months. And so here I am five years later.
0: Wow. That is uh that is really, really awesome. And I feel like so many of us have come into product management and and UX design by almost, I don't know, stumbling into it. And that's kind of how my background was too, was it wasn't necessarily something I was looking for, but kind of fell backwards into it. And because a long time ago, there there wasn't a really established field for product in UX design. It was, it was, I don't know, much more of, I guess, the kind of thing that you stumbled into. And, and I want to dive into a lot more of, of some of the things that you touched on, but before we do that outside of, you know, the, the UX design and the user research and the human factors research that you do outside of all of the, the work, uh, are there other things that you enjoy doing?
1: Hmm. I am very family oriented. So I love to spend time with family, love to eat. And so I guess just by the nature of loving to eat, I love to cook because I like to eat good food. And um, we have quite a few chefs in, in the family. So I spend a lot of time experimenting and coming up with stuff. And I love to buy new equipment like <laughs> air fryers and instant pots and and push the boundaries on, you know, the things that I wouldn't expect to make in those kind of devices, but you know, try it out and see what happens kind of thing. So, I like to spend a lot of time, you know, doing stuff with the fam. That that's my thing. Awesome.
0: That's great. Is there a favorite dish or a signature dish or or oh something like that that you would have?
1: So, I love sweets, so I make a really good oatmeal raisin cookie, and a lot of people don't like oatmeal raisin cookies. And I have friends that, um, anytime there's a get together, that's what they want me to bring. That and guacamole, which are two things that don't require a whole lot. <laughs> but I have tried to share the the guac recipe with other people, and they can never replicate. Wow. So I'm not sure what it is, but I don't know.
0: Okay, that yeah. uh, that's that's really great. I love a good guacamole, and the fact that you get requests for your Omo Raisin cookies, that is that's impressive. Cause those are those are the type of cookie that often get, I don't know, they get ragged on a lot
1: because yeah. so,
0: and it, that's impressive. So I wanted to dive into, you know, some of uh, some of the things you touched on, your background and, and the work that you do in UX design. And and you kind of touched on you know how you came into the yeah, the UX field and the user research field. What really intrigued you about staying with it? You know, you mentioned you know, getting in an, an internship with IBM and you know beginning uh, your journey there. What really kind of kept you going uh, once you got started?
1: It's a good question. I um I always look at the. I guess it's a really nice intersection of listening to people and having the opportunity to take what people say and what people do and looking for alignment and having the opportunity to get to kind of the root of motivations and needs and that sort of thing. Because it fascinates me um, to, to kind of watch other people do their job and see where we've figured out how to get around some of the complexities of the tools we use or the parts of our job that are not optimal. I love to look at all of that and kind of then talk to people about it. But more importantly, like when you think about those conversations, to just walk away from a conversation like that with like a "oh, that's interesting" to me is is not interesting. I'd rather have the ability to influence making it better. And so, having had the experiences throughout my career where I am able to influence an improved experience for users. Um, And that I can bring so a software developer can write, you know, really good code and someone in marketing can really position it well. But I love to have uh, the ability to influence that experiential aspect and that experience can touch so many of those other areas like marketing and development and that kind of thing. So that's what's kept me going and talking to people. I think um, everybody has a story, you know, agree
0: completely with with all of that. Uh, and I'm interested in you. You mentioned this on uh, the transition from you know going from a, a practitioner to a manager, and you know that is a that, that's a big leap for a, a lot of mm-hmm. uh, people in in our field, and something mm-hmm. that a lot of us aspire to, uh, mm-hmm. but don't necessarily always realize the full implications mm-hmm. of it because it's a you know it's a different skill set and a different set of responsibilities. So, uh, tell us about your journey in moving from, you know, a practitioner within the Mm -hmm. field into a manager within the field.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I think the way you, the way you stated it is a really good example of where we go from practitioner to understanding how to manage people so that they can be effective practitioners. And for me, it was looking at what is the next step in that. And it's moving into being a leader and knowing that not only is my role to help manage the people in my organization, but it's to lead the entire organization around being human centered or user centered and to find or to kind of pull out of individual's their uniqueness, because we've all had managers that basically check the box and make sure we show up on time and, you know, do what we're supposed to do. But leadership to me is more important in being able to get to know someone to the level, coaching them through the hardest times, because in in working with other people, sometimes UXers have the, you know, we get a bad rap and it's so hard for us to work with product and or the business and development. And we end up having to play like the the middleman between the two. And so sometimes those skills of persuasion and negotiation and um, collaboration are the things that I think as leaders, we have an opportunity to help cultivate in UX practitioners. And I love your background because what I've seen is so many People who were really good at UX from a um, practitioner standpoint, but then a strategic standpoint, were able to move into product management roles and to have an even greater influence on the direction and strategy. So, you know, those are the kind of things that I see or saw as a part of my role. And I still take those, you know, as a business owner, I sometimes forget that, oh, I'm still a, a leader, And I should still oversee the team and the work in that same way, even though I don't work for someone else and I'm not getting like, you know, my performance Mm -hmm. (laughs) appraised and that kind of thing. I still owe it to the practitioners that, um, you know, work for lean geeks and that that I still should should emulate those leadership skills.
0: Yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense. What was maybe the biggest surprise that you found in that transition in moving from kind of an individual practitioner into a leadership role?
1: Mm -hmm. So the first thing that always comes to mind is I always, no matter how far you go in stepping away from being a practitioner, to me, it's important to keep your skills sharp. So I made sure that if there was a project that, um, Or even today, if there's a project that someone on the team is working on, I feel obligated to spend some time rolling up my sleeves and getting involved in things in some capacity so that when I get into conversations that are more strategic or at a a top down level, that I can speak, you know, like intelligently to that particular space, that topic area, that user within that space, that kind of thing. So kind of keeping your your hands dirty a little bit to me is important. Also from a leadership standpoint, I think balancing the hardest part is balancing what's right for your client or customer. So as the individual creating or being a UXer on something, that end user balancing what they need and what's best for them with what's best for the business. That's also a difficult balance in terms of guiding the team around the fact that, yeah, this might not be the optimal solution for our users, but we've got to also balance that this is a money-making business that has to drive revenue. So yeah. those conversations can sometimes be difficult.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. That's really good. I wanted to touch on another point you, you brought up there, uh, which is working across the disciplines. Um, you know, obviously within product. So within product management and UX specifically, uh, like you mentioned, you need to work across a whole bunch of different teams and groups and disciplines. What have you seen is, you know, some of the difficulties in that and, and how do you overcome some of those difficulties, especially mm-hmm. for you know UX designers and researchers mm-hmm. in working with engineers or product mm-hmm. managers or marketing or sales or, or whoever it might be. You know, what, what are some of the the best ways that you found to go about that?
1: One of the first things I've always uh, stood by is to not feel or to make others feel like, you know, we're in this ivory tower of, you know, I have a PhD and I know how to do this work and you don't. So just trust what we throw over the fence kind of thing that that never worked for me. And so I've always seen engagement with end users as an opportunity for others to observe and to learn. and for us that have, for those of us that have these specific skills to use that skill to show others in the organization, how to capture feedback objectively, or how to interpret what we've learned, that kind of thing. So I've always seen bringing others into the fold. If there are ways that you can um, empower a product manager or a business analyst to go and do some of this you know, um, discovery work on their own, give them some tools to help them do that. I can remember years ago, a junior product manager that wanted to go out and talk to some of the clients. He was asking me like, what kind of questions should he ask the prospects? And so he had a really hard time with asking questions that weren't too biased or pointed and that kind of thing. So I said, let's pretend like, you know, one of us just got a haircut and ask the other, like you ask me, I just got a haircut. You ask me questions about getting a haircut. And so, you know, he realized he should ask questions about what was the experience like? What did the, the uh, stylist do that was different than the last time? What were my thoughts or feelings about that experience? And so he recognized that when we take in and, and kind of look at that inquiry process and observation, observational process, when we look at that around everyday interactions that we have with one another, there are ways to take some of those skills and use them in the way we interact with customers yeah. and end users.
0: Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. So helping others, building them up and teaching mm-hmm. them about some of the the same thing. So it's, it's not about being separate. It's about bringing everybody into the same, uh, the same capabilities and the same discipline mm-hmm. of here's, here's how we do UX together. And it's about mm-hmm. all of us being part of the same group and and the same ability to do it as, as one larger, more cohesive entity. Uh, that's really good. I love this. There's just, I feel like there's so many good things uh, to talk about. And I I want to, I want to touch on some things that you've, you've brought up a couple of times now in your, in your work throughout your career and specifically in the work that you do in in the company that you founded, Lean Geeks, uh, you talk a lot about you know, human centered design and mm-hmm. uh, human centered UX. What maybe you can build on that for us? Like, tell mm-hmm. us more about that. What mm-hmm. is it, and why is it so important?
1: I always, I'm a little biased in terms of thinking that human factors is one of those really fascinating fields that every organization can use. Human factors is the study of work. And so when you think about work, I always liken everything that we do, social or otherwise, with technology or other tools and products. It's, it's work because you're trying to do something to accomplish something. And when you think about human-centered design, you've got to understand enough about people from a cognitive perspective and a physical perspective to understand that whatever ecosystem you influence or, or create, that in that, you've got to accommodate the, the strengths and limitations that we have as humans. You've got to understand, are there certain, like if it's aging adults, you know, what are some of the limitations that exist for that population? So having a human-centered design approach around things means that you're considering the whole human and you're considering the fact that they're trying to get something done, fun or otherwise, like there's a goal in mind. And so in that, you want that design to be conducive um, to to them and to their needs.
0: Got it. Well, that makes sense. And then how do you, within you know your work and within Lean Geeks and, and the work that you do, how do you help incorporate that into what... Uh, what you're doing, but also what other teams and other companies are doing? Mm
1: -hmm. So that's an interesting question because the ideal, the ideal client from my perspective is one that does not come to us just for us to go and get, you know, go gather this information for us and throw it back over the fence so that we can, you know, figure out what are the requirements, you know, what is, what are the priority of those requirements, that kind of thing. The teams that I really, really love working with are the ones that they want to actually learn some of these techniques. And when we walk away, they want to have something that they can rinse and repeat, you know, and and going back to showing others that are not in UX or even that are in their UX organization. Here are some techniques that you can use, even if you're not highly skilled or highly trained Um, you know, these are just some things, basic things that you can do differently to get better results or better data. So I always try to find ways to, um, educate at the same time as deliver.
0: All right. No, that's good. Going along those same lines, like when does it make sense for a team or an organization to solicit help or to bring in like UX researchers or UX designers uh, if that mm-hmm. isn't part of their skill set or part of their organization or team, like when do you mm-hmm. see that as being the right thing for for you or or or, or somebody with that skill set to step in?
1: So I see like two or three like f- discrete um, opportunities. So if you're in an organization where, and we have s- several clients that come to us um, in this regard, is where you have a team of people who are junior researchers and designers. And you know that you need people who are more senior to help guide their work. That's been um, a huge opportunity for us because um, these teams might be vying for projects of their own from their clients, but they might need to white label people from our team to, to be a part of their team. Or they have work that they need to get done and they know that in the current landscape and right now we all know how hard it is to find talented people, that they might come to us and know that we can help them get through or get through a project in that regard. Um, Another opportunity I see is where an organization is trying to get objective feedback. Sometimes it's difficult to get objective feedback when you're doing the work yourself as the company. We typically go into projects and only mention our client. So we don't share with the people that we're observing or engaging with. We don't share who we're working for or on, you know, on whose behalf we're doing this project or work. So that allows us to get that feedback sometimes about the client where people might say, oh, I use blankety blank product and they suck. And that might be our client, (laughs) but a participant, a panelist might not have framed it that way if they knew that someone from the company was doing the work. So I think that there's that objectivity that um, you can't get if you're doing the work yourself as the Mm -hmm. company, even in the process of recruitment, you can't recruit people because they're going to know it's your company. So then they may either say yes or no based on that.
0: Right. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. Kind of going along those same lines, like what are some other challenges that you've seen with companies, when it comes to some of the human-centered designer research, I mean, you touched on just just there the idea of getting objective research. Um, mm-hmm. But are there other challenges that you see as far as really incorporating, you know, some of these principles and you know some of you know, UX in general and, and some of this user research that mm-hmm. companies struggle with that you found to be some of the most common things?
1: if I had a nickel for every client that comes to us and and says, we have people for you to engage as panelists to use in this work, I'd be a rich woman because (laughs) they always promise us that we don't need to bake in time and cost around recruitment because we've got people. And then we get, we sign the contract and then either those people ghost them and have nothing (laughs) to say to them or, or to us, or, um, they actually dig a little deeper and realize either they're the wrong demographic or psychographic, or they're just not available. So that's one thing I think that has been a lesson for us is to always have that conversation about baking in time and costs around recruitment, because it's not going to be as easy as you think. And for us, that's the hardest part of any project. Mm. Um, So that's, that's part of it. And then also, What we typically encounter is that organizations will have designers and a lot of them have really good designers. Mm -hmm. Really good designers, my opinion, are those that are capable of also identifying the opportunities to validate their ideas Mm -hmm. or what they've created. Not every organization has um, the luxury of having individuals like that. And so sometimes they can get into this kind of rhythm of creating, creating, creating and thinking, "Mm, we've created it and it looks good and it's done without doing the work to also validate those ideas. So I think that's something that also comes into the conversation quite often.
0: Yeah, that's definitely something that even I feel like even mature uh, Mm -hmm. organizations from a product or design perspective can fall into the trap so easily of not properly validating building is so much easier than validating because you can see the product of of creating and launching features whereas validating if what you've done is actually the right thing tends Mm -hmm. to be more difficult so that that makes a lot of sense and then super interesting on the getting people for the research on, on that being, you know, one of the key difficulties. I actually want to dive into that a little bit because you posted a really, really fascinating uh, statistic, and you know, we were talking about this before we started. Because um, there's kind of two parts to this: that uh, in getting people and individuals for research, it can be a really difficult thing, like you mentioned, but also making sure that the individuals. That we have within some of our research groups, whether it's for user research or validation or whatever it is, are really representative of either the customer segments that that we're looking for, or more broadly of the right population. And they're not skewed towards uh, certain demographics, or it's not all uh, you know just the the standard. I guess mm-hmm. white men or you know, mm-hmm. whatever you know whatever the, that might be, that we're getting a really representative group mm-hmm. that can help us uh, overcome what potentially could be biases that we build into our product. So tell us more about how we can do that. and what are some of the issues that you've seen with it, and then how can we overcome some of the, the issues that that uh, you know, non-representative uh, sampling, can introduce into our products.
1: Mm -hmm. So if the work that you're doing in-house or in terms of your engagement with an external agency involves an advisory council and that advisory council, I had a client years ago, they um, steered me towards their internal advisory council um, lead and when I connected with that person and said, well, let's look at the demographics of your, like the, the the range of demographics of your user or your market, let's look at that. And then let's compare it to your advisory council. She immediately was like, Oh, well then the conversation ends here because our advisory council is on average or is solely comprised of on average 50 something white males within who are educated and make at least 80 K. And so right there, and she's like, but we serve people who don't even have high school diplomas, who are black and Latinx in rural areas. And so that's where my conversation with um, my stakeholders started around the fact that there is a lot of um, bias that's just going to come in from people who have access to technology, people who are educated enough to understand terminology You know, there are things that are going to come out of this work if we just engage that advisory council that will not be representative of your market. And so in in instances like that, that's where we have to do some of that grassroots recruiting of connecting with people in, you know, Latinx credit unions or finding Walmart managers that will allow us to put flyers in their break rooms or you know, people on Craigslist. So we have to find all these creative ways to recruit people. And the typical situation involves a referral process. So if you and I are two older black women who are, you know, not well-educated, but we are strong in our church. If I get involved and I share with you or others in our church you're more likely to trust me because of that connection and relationship we have through our church. So we leverage those relationships and connections in the work that we do around recruiting, because we recognize that um, you can't get to people through, you know, those necessarily through a recruitment firm or the traditional means that you or I as educated people have access to.
0: Right. Yeah. So leveraging relationships and referrals Uh, Mm -hmm. sounds like a a really powerful route to be able to uh, introduce better representation, and that can be so important. What what have been some of the pitfalls that you've seen, either companies or products that don't necessarily uh, introduce better representation into Mm -hmm. their user research or into their uh, validation? If they don't do some of these things,
1: Mm, so if you think about um, certain like markets, you know how they'll say like an urban consumer market, you know, like there are needs that um, if you consider technology, so maybe it's some sort of cellular technology or something, if you're considering an urban versus non-urban community, and I hate to use the urban Mm -hmm. versus non-urban, but I mean, those are sometimes the classifications. And when you look at not engaging the um, one demographic, you potentially run into not considering you know, connectivity issues or technology needs or um, feature sets that are necessary for, um, I know years ago, I remember an example of an app that was created for people to report potholes in their community. And they could go and report the potholes on this app. And then the city would come and they would fill the pothole and that kind of thing, right? So when you think about the neighborhoods where the potholes exist, those are more likely not gonna be the folks that have that app on their phone, And in the grand scheme of, you know, job and food insecurity and a lack of resources, the potholes in your street might be the least of your worries. So when you think about the the utility of an app like that, that's where you get into the um, haves and have nots gaining access to resources because of that disparity that was baked into the whole concept itself of making it an app yeah so So, you run into those challenges for sure
0: yeah that's such a good example because i feel like there's so many different levels of it um you know i've i've worked on apps that have been uh, for uh, specific uh, areas that are you know much lower uh, technology fluency and so Mm -hmm. we as technologists you know, that's something that you have to just like get out of the building and and realize that not everybody is tech savvy and has, you know, their computers. Um, You know, a lot of the folks that we were working with, they had to go to the library to use a computer. And, you know, that's what we were having to build for. And that's just, if you're not conscious of that, then you're just not building correctly. And, And like you said, if you even bring it back a level, there's building it in general. If mm-hmm. you're not taking into account who has access versus who doesn't, then you may be building something that isn't going to do what you mm-hmm. hope it's going to do because it's not solving the problem the, as, a, as well as it could, given that mm-hmm. the right people don't have access to it, where it That's could right. solve the, the, most pro, the most pressing problems. That's um, right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's really, really good. And, and something that I, I feel like we, we just need to talk about all the time because it, mm-hmm. it's such an important subject. And, and if we don't, if we don't constantly think about it and don't uh, do the right research and right validation and build right. those things, then we, we will consciously or unconsciously build bias into our products and right. into our features.
1: So with that point, I think the very important point that that kind of is um, segue um, into the fact that if you don't have representation on your UX team, you now get into a position of not having the right folks in the room to kind of call out, hey, guys, are we thinking about or did we consider, you know, that's where representation matters, not only in terms of your panelists, but also within your teams.
0: Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And you, this was the statistic that you posted and I'll I'll read it real quick. And I'd love to get your thoughts on, on this, that uh, you posted this on LinkedIn and and we'll link to that post in the show notes that African-American slash black and Hispanic, Latinx and Latino and Latino respectively account for four percent and nine percent of user researchers in our industry, but make up 13.5 and 18.5 percent of the U.S. population. So with that, uh, Um, how can we do better on our UX mm -hmm. and product teams? Because obviously, like you said, having the representation in the room helps ensure that, you know, we don't have that bias flowing Mm -hmm. through and and that we can call out some of those things before they they make it into our product unconsciously Mm -hmm. or consciously. Uh, So what can we do?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. So, I think hire for more diversity and be intentional about it. I think from the bottom up and the top down. So, you've got to look at hiring practitioners who bring a creativity and, and a research perspective that might be diff- very different than your own, that kind of thing. Or hiring from the top down in terms of leadership that's thinking more broadly in that in that way because of their lived experience. A lot of this goes back to our lived experiences. And, um, I remember a coworker years ago, we were driving, she had like broken her arm or her leg. And so I was driving her home from work every day. And so we would have conversations outside of work that we normally didn't have, but there was something going on. Um, this was before George Floyd and she was bringing to me, she, um, was white. And so she was bringing to me how unfortunate, this situation was, I can't remember what what it was, but it dealt with a black man and something happened. And so she would bring it up, you know, day after day. And then finally, one day she looked at me when I, when I was driving and we were at a red light and she said, you know what? I've never actually thought about the fact that this might not be as shocking to you as it is to me. And I said, you're very right. Because for many of us, we have the example of you know, uneducated or in jail or been to jail or on um, public assistance. Like we come from culturally, some of us come from culturally those different lived experiences. And so, whether we ourselves live them and maybe we've, you know, gained more education and that kind of thing, we still have that context to bring to our um, perspectives at work. And so, you know, I think for her, that was an ex- interesting kind of eye opener. But when you don't have, Um, that representation in your organization, it can mean either missed opportunities or huge misses in terms of doing things right. Um, And I think that that's why I used to look at the fact that in a UX role, I was like a minority within a minority with a you know, just who I am as a black woman in a UX leadership role. And it, it, at some point, times in my career was very frustrating um, because of the the interactions I had with other folks in the organization. But as a business owner, I now see it as a huge opportunity for me to leverage those differences in a way that if a client comes to my company, I have a huge opportunity to inject some of that representation and um, different ways of thinking that maybe they wouldn't have access to otherwise.
0: That's, it's so good and so important because if there's not that level of uh, just different experiences and background it can be so so difficult to think through all of the the various ways and impacts that a one a product can have or a feature can have or just how other people will experience it i mean you can you can try to think through it but there's just i feel like there's no way without having the variety of experience and variety of backgrounds that you can that you can even do that and so ensuring that you have have that within the team and within the organization so that it's not um, a consistent like monoculture of mm-hmm. everybody with the same background and same experience and and uh, you know same education and and all of those things because the, that can be a very I feel like it can be the the path of least resistance often because yeah. um, you know culturally everybody can get along I guess and you can build a team that's all very similar but uh, you don't get any of those uh, different experiences and different perspectives yeah. and it makes for uh, from a product perspective a very very difficult uh, at least in my experience a difficult uh, way to build and think about the UX. All right. Any other thoughts on that? I, I think it's such a such a great topic, and, and really appreciate your perspective. So, I mm-hmm. guess any other thoughts on that subject in general, or or ways mm-hmm. that we can improve it?
1: Um, I think it's about asking constantly asking questions and constantly asking ourselves: Have we done the work that's necessary to ensure that we've reached the right voices in that work? Even when it's difficult, you know, when there's difficulty, it might be that you have to go about things in a creative or unconventional way to gain access to people. But have you done that? Have you even had that conversation? Um, I think that that's always important. And I always think of um, the fact that the more different everyone is in terms of backgrounds and educations and the context that we bring to a conversation, I feel like the more as long as they're facilitated effectively, the more effective outcomes you can achieve.
0: That's, that's a great point. And building on that, what have been some of the the best ways to facilitate those conversations that, that you found?
1: So and that's, that's a good question. So the best ways to facilitate, facilitate those conversations are, I've learned in my um, consulting career that it's even more important where you come into an organization and don't always know all the players and the some of the nuances of the culture or the climate in that organization. One thing I found is you have to work very closely with stakeholders, your like primary stakeholders to make sure that they pull the right people into the conversations. Depending on the altitude and the outcomes you hope to achieve in a conversation, make sure that people who have ownership and input are in the room, but those that just have awareness don't always need to be present. Because I've seen things go off the rails where someone's very much like, "Come on, come on, come on! We have to get to hurry up and get done," but we haven't even defined at a strategic level what it is. Yeah. And so, I think um, for me, it's been a lesson in really the planning piece of things can sometimes be more important than the execution from a facilitative perspective. Also, when facilitating conversations, obviously, as you would with any sort of conversation, make sure that even the people who are quiet or introverted are engaged in some way in that conversation, because sometimes the best ideas come from the people who have, um, or who are the least vocal. Um, And so I think that's always important in, in facilitation. And I also think that ensuring that you walk away from a facilitated conversation with things that are actionable is always important. So did you gain or get things that you can act on, even if it wasn't necessarily what you went into that conversation to get? That's
0: great. All right. What, let let me ask, um, what have been some of the the best changes that you've seen due to good research or good design practices Mm -hmm. within uh, either the companies that you've worked with, as a consultant um mm-hmm. as an owner of your own company or mm-hmm. uh you know as as a leader within companies themselves um mm-hmm. you know as as companies or teams have adopted some of these uh human factors and human centered design practices uh what have been some of the the best changes that you've seen as a result
1: so i've seen where there was the identification of a white space within a software application market and Even though that software application at its core was like project management, essentially a tool to help you kind of manage a project to the end, what the research we conducted revealed was that in that project management, even if that project was the object that moved through that application, the most important aspect of that object was getting paid and was billing and making sure you're billing accurately and that you're getting paid at the right time and you're not leaving money on the table. We would not have known that that was the focus and of the object as it moved through the application, without going through that research. Another example was an experience where the product team presumed that giving people the ability to use the application not only to manage the day to day tasks within their application, but allowing you to shop and make choices on different types of offerings within. That application, they thought that giving users the opportunity to shop on a mobile device. Um, And when I say shop, it's like the plan that you choose. Mm -hmm. They thought that we should give people the ability to do that shopping. But the research that we did, we found that people were like creating spreadsheets and making decisions based on like crunching numbers to see the overall kind of spend or investment that they'd have to make. And then they go and ask their mother for recommendations. (laughs) So... That was something like going and asking mom and then doing crunching numbers on a spreadsheet meant don't even put it in the the mobile app. That was a whole big piece of work that they had sized and planned on their roadmap that needed to come off and allowed them to do things that were more important. Yep,
0: yep. No, those are are great examples. I love it. For those getting into UX and design and user research um, who may be new to the field, what advice would you give to them you know, right now, uh, starting out?
1: That's a good question. So the first thing is curiosity. If curiosity is not a curiosity about people, if that is not how you are wired today, do not think that just by taking on the role of UX or the title means that you're going to become curious. The people I've seen that are really successful, you know, whether or not they're really good at um researcher design they're the curious ones because they constantly ask questions that help them course correct and get closer to the right outcome so that curiosity i think is what you want to ask yourself do i really care not so much like care from an emotional standpoint but do i really care to understand and analyze and ask more questions kind of thing i think that there's also a lot to be said about experience and with time comes experience. So, you know, having spurts of like I was here for 3 months and I did this, I was here for 6 months and I did that kind of thing to me is not demonstrated experience because you have to see something like through to the end to see what comes out on the other end and what the outcomes are and that takes time. And I think a lot of people want to, you know, go to boot camp, get a certificate and say, you know what, I I need a job, I need to make 80, 90k. Right now, because I did the work, but doing the work requires you to go through that whole kind of cycle of, you know, what is it all the way to it's out the door. And those are probably the two biggest pieces of advice. Oh, another thing I think is that whether you have a background in arts or software engineering or something like that, sometimes those capabilities that you have are your platform, but they don't, that doesn't mean that you have to stick to doing design or doing software engineering, those might be a catalyst for you to have effective conversations with others in your organization, for example, and use that foundation or that background as a tool and not necessarily your only tool. So you can gain those other skills, maybe on the job or through additional training, but don't look at your degree as your only kind of path
0: Those are some great pieces of advice. I I love it. All right. Um, I've got two kind of final questions, but before we, Mm -hmm. we get to those, any final thoughts on anything that we've talked about or or anything that we haven't talked about?
1: I, always think that the balance for any of us is in anything that we do. I mean, like if you get hurt, you can triage or take care of your injury at home, but there comes a point where you got to go see a professional or an expert, you know, mental health, same thing. The same thing applies to UX research and design. There are some things you can do on your own, but there comes a point you have to be able to recognize that point at which you need to solicit the assistance or partnership with an expert. Sometimes that can be hard because we all think, you know, I can draw a picture. I can, you know, create some wireframes when sometimes you need someone who has expertise in that to do it.
0: Yeah, it's so true. And, and it goes even for like really experienced uh, organizations that getting outside expertise, just, it makes sense Uh, whether it's, Mm -hmm. UX, whether it's research, whether it's, uh, any other kind of area within the, the organization, just getting outside advice and expertise, uh, to supplement either to, ha- to help do it, or just to supplement like what you're already okay. doing just makes a lot of sense. And I've found that to be really, really helpful, whether it's just to, uh, to augment the capabilities or to like really, uh, mm-hmm. to supplement something that's really deficient. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, so whether or not you have it or whether you really, really need it, it, mm-hmm. it, it helps a lot at various stages to add mm-hmm. some additional team members or to to get a lot more support, just depending on where you're at with your needs.
1: That's right. And sometimes we have to look at it like, you know, you didn't know your mama's cooking wasn't any good until you went out and experienced <laughs> someone else's. So it's kind of that. Yeah. I think it, I think it's working. I think it's good. And then you experience, you know, food somewhere else and you're like, well, maybe it wasn't as good as I thought it was. So you've got to make that assessment at some point.
0: (laughs) So true. All right. Um, well, this has been an absolutely great conversation. I've, I've got, um, you know, two more questions for you and then, and then we'll Mm -hmm. kind of wrap it up, but have you, uh, read or watched or listened to anything recently that, uh, you found particularly interesting or good?
1: Yes, yes. So um, recently, uh, someone recommended that I watch Young, Rich and African on Netflix. And I was like, what is this? And so my husband is from Africa. So if it wasn't for being married to someone African, I would have what many of us in the US have as a context around what Africa is like. But watching Young, Rich and African, I think it gives us all a glimpse into the variety of perspectives that exist in Africa. And, you know, that's illustrative of any part of the world and what we perceive it to be based on what we're told or what we see here. But what I found really interesting for it to be a reality show, the complexity and depth of the relationships and connections that they make. And, you know, again, as a psychologist in UX, there was a lot in terms of the cultural aspect of community that you see in Africa, And the way that even for a controversial reality show, they showed a lot of depth in terms of being a community with one another. And that community piece um, for us in UX, that community piece has as much to do with how people utilize technology and other services and that sort of thing, because those connections to other people have a huge influence on, on on those things. So I, I watched the show, not only for like the, the bling factor, but it was really interesting to kind of see the dynamics that existed.
0: Oh, that sounds really interesting. We'll have to, I'll have to check you that gotta out. You got to watch it. Yeah, yeah. That sounds good. <laughs> oh, awesome. All right. And final question, um, we'd like to do a, a shout out or a gripe. So if you've, is there any products or anything that you have mm-hmm. used recently, uh, that you you've enjoyed or disliked?
1: I'm not going to call anything out by name, but I can say that recently I have, I don't know if it's because I'm getting older, but I have recently become um, a little bit snobby about buying certain like utensils and appliances and things that you have to work with that are physical products mm-hmm. that are not comfortable. And it's almost like in 2022, we should have the ability to create stuff that every time I use it, I'm not going to like prick my finger because I didn't handle it the way that, you know, with care, I should be able to kind of move around and use it. And I realized that we still have a huge opportunity um, in the physical product space, just as much as the software product space um, in terms of um, engaging our customer and making sure that things work properly.
0: That's, that's, a, that's a really good one that you shouldn't... Yeah, that things should be intuitive enough that you don't yeah. cut yourself for, you know, as you just handle it like a normal person would handle it. Yes.
1: Yeah, I yeah. I,
0: I love it. All right. Uh Kenya, it has been an absolute pleasure uh talking with you. This has been uh we we covered just so many great topics and uh your expertise on all of them has been great. I, I imagine we could probably dive into each of them for probably hours more, uh, just given how much research you've done and and the experience that you have. So I really appreciate it. Um, Where can people go to find out more about you, Lean Geeks and uh, anything else?
1: That's awesome. Thank you. So I want to say thank you again for this time. I enjoyed the conversation as well. You can definitely visit me on LinkedIn, uh, Kenya Odor PhD. uh, And that'll give you kind of pointers to YouTube videos and other content. And you can visit our website, leangeeks.net and have a look and uh, contact me or the team. If you have any questions.
0: Awesome. We'll we'll put those links in the show notes as well. uh, So you can find them there. And uh, again, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for the discussion today.
1: Thank you and have a good one. All right. Thanks everybody for listening.
0: Thanks again for listening. If you like the show, Be sure to follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can follow the show on Twitter at ProdByDesign. That's Prod underscore by underscore design. You can follow me at Kyle Larry Evans on Twitter as well. If you want more product conversation, check out my newsletter, Product Thinking, at productthinking.cc. You can follow me on Medium at Kaya Larry Evans as well, or check out my Medium publication, uh, Product by Design. Thanks again.